Root of Evil is a production of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, in partnership with TNT. This story contains strong language and graphic and potentially disturbing content. Discretion is advised. Now we're standing right on the corner of Wilcox and DeLongpre, 1358 North Wilcox, which is the LAPD's Hollywood Police Station. I worked several years here in patrol and then went on to 17 years in detectives here. Our great uncle, Steve Hodell, is standing outside Hollywood Station in Los Angeles, where he worked for many years as a homicide detective. This is central heartbeat for me. I have a tremendous love for all the memories of not only all the cases, but all of my old partners and all of the people that I met and worked with. I would spend 17 years investigating cases, over 300. I and my partners had one of the highest clearance rates in LAPD history. We were running around 80% clearance. The city was averaging around 55%. We told you back in episode four that it was after Steve had retired when he reconnected with his half-sister, our grandmother, Tamar Hodel. Their first conversation in decades was days after their father, George Hodel, died in 1999. And that's when Tamar first mentioned to Steve that George was investigated in the Black Dahlia murder. In the coming years, they began speaking on a more regular basis. And in 2003, just before Steve's book, Black Dahlia Avenger, was released, and before any family members knew about it, he got another call from his sister. I got a call from Tamar. And she had said, I just got a call from Fauna. And she told me that she just met a man at her work. At the time, our mother, Fauna Hodel, was working at an art gallery in Los Angeles. She says a woman a friend of hers came in with a boyfriend and introduced him, and, and they're standing there talking. When she's introduced as Fauna Hodel, this man says, Fauna Hodel? He says, that's an unusual name. He says, I worked on a case many years ago on a Dr. George Hodel. Any relation? She says, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. The man's name was Walter Morgan. And when Steve connected with him, he shared some incredible information. Turns out he's a retired DA investigator. And he lays out this story where he actually went to the house, the Franklin house. They had picked up my dad, the DA investigators, and had taken him in to the Hall of Justice for questioning. While they had him physically there, Morgan and a couple of other guys, sound guys working for LAPD, went out to the house, actually broke in. He says, I used a card and and shimmed the front door. We went in and we put microphones in the house. In the living room and in the bedroom. He said, and we ran a hard line through the basement out to Pactel telephone lines and ran it to Hollywood Police Station. The very station I had just spent 18 years of my career at. Which is where we're standing 100 feet from. And he said, we wired it for sound and 
did the recordings. I mean, you know, how, how bizarre. You couldn't write the script. Steve had written his book without any proof that his dad was ever officially a suspect. Imagine it's our mom, Steve's niece, who randomly runs into one of the original Black Dahlia investigators. And that investigator corroborates that not only was George Hodel a prime suspect in the murder, but that they bugged his house. This was the first time Steve had heard any of this information. And it all started from a chance meeting that our mom had. If you believe in fate and destiny, it was all preordained. I don't know what the answer is. It's just uh, incredible how it unfolded. This is Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. I'm Yvette. And I'm Rasha. And we're your hosts. Steve came over one night and he said, I got to tell you something, Kelly, because the book will be out in a few days and I want you to hear it from me first. That's Kelly Hodell, Steve's younger brother and our other great uncle. He said, our dad was a homicidal maniac. I knew he was crazy, but I never thought he was that crazy. And then he started telling me some of the details. And of course I believed him immediately because I've always believed him because he's never lied. Stephen has never told a lie to my remembering. That's why when he came over to tell me about his book and about our father, I believed him immediately because I know Steve would not risk his entire reputation. He just wouldn't do this. That's not Steve. It's important here to re-emphasize the fact that when Steve's book came out, he'd made an incredibly compelling argument that his father was the Black Dahlia killer. But he did all of this without any concrete information that George Hodel was actually ever an LAPD suspect. So in April of 2003, my book came out, Black Dahlia Avenger. I contacted Steve Lopez of the LA Times. I gave him a heads up on this and said, hey, you know, the book's about to come out. And I said, here's the deal. You know, my father, I believe, is based on my investigation, is the Black Dahlia killer. And it's been presented to active head deputy DA Steve Kay, and he's reviewed it and said, there's enough here to file. So I wanted to give you a heads up on this because you're a good investigative reporter and wanted you to have this information. He goes to LAPD and says, hey, there's this hotel. He thinks his father killed the Black Dahlia, blah, blah, blah. And they basically say, it's an active case. We don't discuss active cases. They just blew him off. So Steve Lopez contacted L.A. District Attorney Steve Cooley. And Cooley says to him, well, I'm not spending a dime of taxpayers' money to reinvestigate a 60-year-old case. He says, but you know, there is a box in the vault labeled Black Dahlia. If you want to see that. <laughs> Lopez, you know, yeah, I do. So they go down to the vault and they get out this box and that he takes it upstairs and 
He goes into one of the DA's rooms there and sits down and opens it up and opens up a file and out falls a picture of George O'Dell. Whoa! Guess he was a suspect. Steve Lopez thumbed through a few of the documents and found the original transcripts of the electronic surveillance of George Hodel. The same electronic surveillance that DA investigator Walter Morgan told Steve Hodel about after meeting our mom in her art gallery. They had bugged the Franklin house. And these were the transcripts of the recorded audio of George Hodel from inside his home. It was all real. And this was the evidence. Steve Lopez wrote his columns in the LA Times. Then Uncle Steve reached out to the DA himself. Shortly thereafter, I contact Cooley, along with a news producer friend of mine. And we say, can we review the files? And he says, yeah. I let him do it. I guess I have to let you. So we go down and I spend the whole day. And I copy everything that's related to George Hodel. 600 pages of stuff. So these DA documents, the surveillance, the transcripts, all of this, nobody knew they existed. They didn't exist in LAPD files, even though they should, because we learned that they were actually all handed over to LAPD, and they've disappeared. So they vanished from LAPD files. Today's LAPD doesn't know they exist. Today's LAPD doesn't know George Odell was ever a suspect. What I discover is that actually this Lieutenant Jemison. Lieutenant Jemison was the original lead investigator on the Black Dahlia case for the district attorney's office. He worked alongside Walter Morgan. This Lieutenant Jemison was ordered to turn over all the files to LAPD, the original recordings, 146 pages of transcripts, turned them over to LAPD. And he was ordered to shut it down, close it out. And then never speak about it again. And that's what he did, only what he also did was he locked away a second set of books. He copied them and put a second set of books in the DA vault. That's why he wears a white hat in my mind. Had Lieutenant Jemison not done that, we would have never known any of this, that George Hodel was ever connected. At one point during the Black Dahlia investigation in 1947, the LAPD had a thousand officers working on the case. Then the case file just disappeared. But before that happened, the lead investigator, Lieutenant Jemison, had made a copy of the entire file and buried it in the district attorney's vault in 1950. 53 years later, that's what Steve Hodell, the son of the prime suspect, now had in his hands. But how could the LAPD allow the case file on its most high-profile murder to just disappear? As a true crime listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. Consider Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe was named Best Home Security Systems for 2024 by U.S. News and World Report, and Newsweek awarded it Best Customer Service in Home Security. The system covers your entire home in protection. It has sensors to detect break-ins, floods, and fires, plus a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch over your property day and night. It's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. 
Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera, warning them that they're being recorded and police are on their way. With no contract and a 60-day money-back guarantee, you can try Simply Safe risk-free. Simply Safe will give you peace of mind. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/rootofevil. That's simplysafe.com/rootofevil. There's no safe like Simply Safe. There was a saying associated with Beverly Hills Chief of Police, Cliff Anderson. And what he said was, vice is like shit. If you leave it alone, you don't smell it. But if you start kicking the turds, everyone smells the shit. That's author John Bunton. We introduced him back in episode two. John focuses on crime and policing in cities. And he wrote the book, L.A. Noir, the struggle for the soul of America's most seductive city. And he says that during the time of the Black Dahlia murder in 1947, corruption was everywhere. Well, Los Angeles was a place in which law enforcement was shot through with corruption. You had the LAPD. And you have the LAPD Detective Bureau. And the DA's office was another source of power, which was frequently riddled with corruption. And, you know, payoffs were commonplace. It was sort of the price of doing business. There were certain rules observed. There was a lot of discussion about how much the payoffs amounted to. By some estimates, the figure was as high as $30 million. And if you were an ambitious young officer and you didn't respect those prerogatives, your career would run into trouble. Los Angeles was a messy place. And that was a real frustration to organized crime figures like Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. He would complain that Los Angeles was too hard to organize. You had to pay off every captain of every division. You had the sheriffs, you had the police, you had the prosecutors. One of the reasons why he tried to decamp and go to Las Vegas was because he was just frustrated dealing with all the factions in Los Angeles. The idea that the wealthy and the powerful were not subject to the laws of Los Angeles was one that was well-established and acknowledged. And I think it's one of the reasons why the Black Dahlia case has fueled so much speculation. With copies of the DA file in hand, Steve took everything home and began to painstakingly piece it all together. I sat down and went through the transcripts, spending four or five months putting it all together. This was like pure gold, as far as an investigator is concerned. Timeline is critical here. Back in episode three, we told you about the incest trial in 1949 between George Hodel and his daughter Tamar. During the trial, you might remember that one of the witnesses, Barbara Sherman, recanted her testimony and she was arrested for perjury. Then, George Hodel's improbable acquittal came on Christmas Eve, 1949. Well, there was another witness who lied on the stand. Lillian Lenorak was her name. She was called by the defense, and she testified that Tamar was lying about her abortion. She said she knew because she was with Tamar at the doctor's office. Lillian Lenorak said only an examination of Tamar was given. No abortion was performed. 
The following is one of the documents that was in the DA file that Steve recovered. Again, George Hodel's acquittal was on Christmas Eve, 1949. This document was dated January 30th, 1950, a little more than one month later. And it was written by a Santa Barbara policewoman named Mary Unkiefer. And it reads, Dear Sir, I'm sorry I missed the gentleman from your office on Wednesday. I work at odd hours, and I arrived home about 10 minutes after your men left for Los Angeles. I had expected to come to Los Angeles early this week as I had business to attend to there, but I find it's not necessary for me to make the trip except to give you what information that I can regarding the woman whom I brought to Santa Barbara from the home of Dr. Hodel on Franklin Avenue. When I arrived at the Franklin address, I could sense that something was wrong as soon as I entered the building. The doctor seemed very anxious to tell me that the girl was in a bad mental condition and that she had attempted suicide. When I asked to see Lillian, Dr. Hodel explained that I had no need to worry about her giving me trouble on the way to Santa Barbara. He stated that he had given her a large enough dose to keep her asleep for three hours. Dr. Hodel and Joe Barrett, a rumor at the residence, took Lillian to my car, holding her up on both arms. That wakened her and she began to tell us about the doctor. She talked a great deal about her relations with him and she stated that she was very much afraid of him. She said she had witnessed an abortion performed on his own little girl. And then she stated that he had threatened to have her child taken from her if she didn't testify in his favor in court. She said that she had never attempted suicide and that she had never cut her wrists or her hands. She stated that the doctor constantly gave her drugs and then when she wakened, the cutting had been done. While I was in the doctor's sitting room waiting for the woman who was to drive with us, I asked the doctor what had caused the girl to go haywire so suddenly. He said it was a great deal to do with some of the cases that she had in court. It wasn't until Lillian wakened and told us how she had perjured herself in court for the doctor that I realized what case it was that had caused her so much worry. There were scratches and bruises on her forehead and her arms. Her three-year-old baby said that the doctor knocked his mommy down and made mommy cry hard. It was after I left Lillian at the psycho ward that I had a chance to talk to Joe Barrett. He stated emphatically that there was nothing wrong with Lillian except what had been brought on by the cruel treatment received from Dr. Hodel. He stated that he knew Lillian had perjured herself at the trial because the doctor had her under his influence. He stated that the relations between the doctor and his child were terrible and were worse than I had any idea. He stated that the doctor boasted that the $15,000 he paid his defense attorney, Jerry Giesler, was used to influence the district attorney and that that was how the doctor was cleared of the charge against him. Lillian stated that she had a very guilty mind after the trial and she told Hodel that she was going to tell the district attorney that she lied on the witness stand. I visited Lillian at the hospital yesterday. She seemed glad to see me and she stated that she would like to tell me all about the true facts concerning the doctor's activities and the trial. But she stated she knew he would have her done away with as well as her baby. She said she would like to have told the men from your office all about it, but she said she was not sure if you were her friends and she was just plumb scared to tell for fear he would carry out his threat to have her boy taken from her and to have her committed to an insane institution. I don't know that this information will be of any help to you. It's about all I could tell you if I came down personally. But if there is anything I can do to help in anything that is good and sincere, I am at your service. Very sincerely yours, 
Mary W. Unkiefer. What's so remarkable about the Unkiefer letter is the fact that it demonstrates to what lengths and what ends and how violent George Hodel was in regards to witnesses that were threatening to testify against him. He drugs her, knocks her to the ground, knocks her out unconscious, stages a suicide, cuts her wrists while she's unconscious, superficially bandages them, totally setting her up for a fake attempted suicide. All of this to discredit her because he fears that she's going to inform on him and tell the truth about the abortion and Tamar. It shows how absolutely violent he is. This is done in the presence of her three-year-old child. reading a statement in the letter that says, he hit mommy and knocked her down, he hurt mommy bad. That's heartbreaking. You'll remember from previous episodes that five years earlier, in 1945, George Hodel was a suspect in the overdose death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding. This was one of his M.O.'s, he did the same thing with Ruth Spaulding. He drugged his granddaughter and took pictures of her. I'm absolutely sure he drugged Elizabeth Short at the house before he murdered her. It just shows how violent and how clever he was. Lillian Lenorak. He couldn't kill her because she was too close to him. And that would have been an easy solve. But next best thing was to totally discredit her. To me, this letter is a crucial piece of evidence because it basically verifies and shows us George Hodel's true nature. But there was still so much more in the DA file. There was another document an investigation conducted by Lieutenant Jemison, where he goes out and he actually interviews my mother on the Santa Monica Pier. First, he shows a picture of Elizabeth Short. And I'll read from their actual document. Lieutenant Jemison, I'll now show you a photograph of Beth Short, ask you whether or not you've ever seen that young lady in your life. Dorothy. No, I never have. Lieutenant Jemison, did you have a conversation with Dr. Hodell about the murder of Beth Short? Dorothy. No, unless we mentioned it when it was in the papers. Lieutenant Jemison, did he ever tell you they can't pin that murder on me? Dorothy. To the best of my knowledge, he didn't and doesn't know her. Jemison, on or about the date of her murder, January 15th, 1947, do you remember being out until 4 a.m. in the morning with George and coming in slightly intoxicated? Now that's three years ago. Dorothy, we never went on drinking parties because I don't drink because of certain tendencies to drink too much. He does not approve of my drinking, and I don't know that I understand your question. Lieutenant Jemison, well, the information that I have is that he was quite intoxicated himself, and at that time, on that occasion, stated they couldn't pin the Black Dahlia murder on him. Dorothy, no, no, that isn't true. Lieutenant Jemison was getting nowhere with Dorero, but she knew more than she was letting on. Remember, in episode three... She was the one to tell Tamar to run away from George. She told Tamar that George was capable of anything and that he'd killed his secretary. Lieutenant Jemison, 
Now, in view of the fact that the district attorney's office is interested in contacting all persons that might have something about whether or not Dr. Hodel had anything to do with this murder, I now show you a photograph of a nude girl and ask you if you recognize who that girl is. Dorothy, there's something familiar about her face. I think she may have been some model or something. Lieutenant Jemison, would you say she's colored girl or half Indian? Do you know? Dorothy, no. I'll show you another photograph of the same girl with a man. Do you recognize the man in the photograph? Dorothy, I would say that was Dr. Hodell. Lieutenant Jemison, I'm sincerely interested in contacting this girl for information. Dorothy, no, I don't know her. I've seen her face. I've seen her photographs that George has of her. Lieutenant Jemison, would you have any idea where we could find her? Dorothy, no. Jemison, I show you the third picture, Dr. Odell and the colored girl. You still can't place any person that might know where I can find her? Dorothy, I don't know. Jemison, let me advise you that we do have information that he, George Odell, did associate with Beth Short. The girl in the photos with George Hodel was Maddie Comfort. We discussed her back in episode three. She was a model and jazz singer, and she had written in her memoir about her sexual relationship with both George and Dorero, and that she witnessed George beating Dorero in the bathtub at their house. But now... When asked to identify her, again, Dorero gave Jemison nothing. Eventually, Jemison tracked down Maddie Comfort and got a statement directly from her, which was also in the DA file. The statement was typed out and read as follows. Maddie Comfort said that she was with Dr. Hodel sometime prior to the murder and that she knew about his being associated with victim. But then, handwritten above the words she knew and about was the word nothing. Someone, after the fact, had changed the statement to read Maddie Comfort said that she was with Dr. Hodel sometime prior to the murder and that she knew nothing about his being associated with victim. So attempting to change, reverse the meeting, the total meaning of it. You're not going to submit a formal report with someone adding in that. So clearly this was added on a later date. Once again, here's a brief timeline. The Black Dahlia murder was in January of 1947. The incest trial ended on Christmas Eve of 1949. The incident with Lillian Lenorak came one month later, at the end of January of 1950. And then, just a few weeks after that, Walter Morgan and his audio technician broke into the Franklin house and planted bugs in the bedroom and living room and staked the house out for five weeks. So from the end of the incest trial to the end of the stakeout was within a span of just three months. As for the stakeout, 18 detectives recorded 41 spools of audio from February 18th to March 27th of 1950. The original audio spools from the stakeout were lost, but all 146 pages of transcription were in the DA file that Uncle Steve found. They're printed in full in his updated book, Black Dahlia Avenger 2. And there are some very incriminating things. 
beginning with the first day of recording. You're going to hear two voices now. One voice is going to read the transcription entries from law enforcement. The other is reading statements recorded of George Hodel. All of this is verbatim. February 18th, 4.20 p.m. Noise around the house. Woman asking for operator several times. Sounded as though she was crying. 7.35 p.m. Hodel and a man with a German accent had a long conversation. Hodel the German. This is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. You do not have the right connection. I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office. Any imperfections will be found. They have to be made perfect. Don't confess ever. Two and two is not four. (laughs) We're just a couple of smart boys. They're out to get me. Two men in the DA's office were transferred and demoted because of my trial. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Call Georgia Street Receiving Hospital right away. Expired at 12.39. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. 8.20 p.m. Sounded as though two men went down steps and entered the basement and began digging. Something was referred to. Not a trace. It also appears as though a pipe was being hit. p.m. Woman screamed. Eight twenty-seven p.m. Woman screamed again. It should be noted that a woman was not heard before the time of screaming since six fifty p.m. She was not in any conversation and not heard of again until the time of letting out these two screams. 8.40 p.m. German leaves the house, escorted to the door by Hodel. 8.40 It's highly likely that it was a murder. George Hodel and this Baron Haringa, this German friend of his, walk downstairs. They pick up an object... The officers hear a beating, a thud, beating against a body. A woman screams. More blows to the body. A woman screams again, and then it goes silent. The fact that LAPD and the district attorney's office were staked out, listening live. You know, they're at Hollywood Station, five minutes away. Why aren't they over there and kicking in the door? I couldn't believe what I was reading. As a police officer, it's like, why aren't they doing a rescue here? Whether it was a murder or a felony assault, it didn't matter. A woman was being beaten, and they're taking no action. February 26th, 9.30 p.m. Hodel conversation with man and woman. Hodel wisecracks. A peculiar people, the Persians. The country produces no virgins. They fuck all day in a violent way. And at night, they practice sexual perversions. (laughs) 
February 26th, 9.50 p.m. Hodel mentions something about murder. March 4th, 1.21 p.m. Phone rings. Hodel answers. You're talking over a tapped line. Oh, yes. It's been tapped for a long time. I'll be home for the next hour. Be sure and come. March 5th, 2.10 p.m. Hodel in conversation with man and woman. Seems to be talking of photography of a surrealistic nature. Hodel shows some pictures of his to the two people. March 24th, 1.11 a.m. Hodel called and sent a nice letter to Mrs. Barb. 1543 Vallejo Street, San Francisco. Something about birthday wishes. Mrs. Barb is Dorothy Barb, Tamar's mother. Tamar's birthday was March 24th, and she turned 15 on that day. Just a few months after the incest trial, George was sending her birthday wishes. March 25th, 11.10 p.m. Hodel and Barron, man with accent, came in talking low. Sounded like Hodel said something about Black Dahlia. Barron said something about FBI, then talked about Tibet. Sounds like Hodel wants to get out of the country. Mentioned passport. Hodel seems afraid about something. This is just a few days after Lieutenant Jemison interviewed Dorero. She told George that Jemison asked her about the Black Dahlia. And if George had ever said that they can't pin that murder on him. She told him that she was shown pictures of Maddie Comfort and that Jemison knew that George was associated with Elizabeth Short. Dorero told George everything. March 26th, 12 a.m. Hodel talking about picture police have of him and some girl. Thought he had destroyed them all. March 27th, 2 a.m. All quiet. Good night. March 27th, 1950, was the last day of the stakeout at the Franklin House. Days later, George Hodel skipped town. And he would spend the next 40 years in Hawaii, Japan, and the Philippines. He'd start an entirely new family there, leaving his old family to pick up the pieces. It's difficult to understand how George Hodel was never arrested. He was recorded saying, Suppose and I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. He was overheard assaulting another woman, possibly killing her, and then digging in the dirt in the basement. And all of this was on top of the other evidence that Lieutenant Jemison had collected. So how did he get away? He was untouchable. He could have laid out so much on so many. He had all of this sensitive information as the head VD control officer for the entire Los Angeles County. And I suspect what happened was 
Well, we know he split, okay? And I think that they were in a situation, so it was kind of after the fact, what do we do? We, we got to make a decision. Well, look, he's out of the country. We may be able to find him. If we do bring him back, is he going to lay out everything he knows on everybody? He's out of the country. You know, maybe for now, let's just leave it at that and move forward and do the things we want to do. Clean up Dodge. And sometime in the future, we can come back to it or whatever. I think that's what happened. The evidence in the DA file pointed directly to George Hodel. But Steve didn't stop there. So this has been an ongoing investigation, and I keep updating my findings in a new edition of the book and a new book. Anyway, at one point, finally, I discover that there are some Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. files at UCLA Special Collections archives. So I thought, well, I'll go check them out. Back at the beginning of episode three, I mentioned that the Franklin House was what our family called the historic Hollywood home that George Hodel owned. I also mentioned that the real name of the home is the Soudan House, and it was built in 1926 by Lloyd Wright, the son of legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright. So I go down and put on the white gloves, go through the whole thing, and I'm given the Lloyd Wright file. And I'm going through the file and just, you know, miscellaneous stuff, architect stuff, and and I come to an inner file that says Hodel on it. I think, oh, Hodel. So I go into that, and what I discover are some actual original receipts, and therefore a work that was done at the Franklin Soden House in 1947. And I'm looking at these original receipts for materials, and it lists 10 concrete bags of cement. And I look at the date on the receipt, and it's January 9th and 10th, 1947. <laughs> and I, I can't believe my eyes. So I'm sitting there, I'm looking at these receipts for the cement bags, 50-pound bags. And of course, my mind immediately flashes to the cement bags. Remember when we talked about the cement bags used to transport the body from an unknown location to the vacant lot? In episode two, Steve Hodell spoke about the 50-pound cement bags and fertilizer bags with watery blood on them that were found at the scene. The investigators had determined that they were used to transport the two halves of Elizabeth Short's body. Well, you know, these are actually the same cement bags, in my mind, that were used to transport from the house. Now, of course, we don't have a serial number on the bags or anything, but how many killers are walking around with a 50-pound cement bag in their back pocket? And the date, of course. It's the exact time. It's three days before the body's found. So that was one part. Then the next receipt I come to is for landscaping. And it's for landscaping that's done at the Franklin House, and it's 300 and $10 worth of landscaping. Of course, we have the manure, 50-pound bags of manure, fertilite, that were also used to bring the body parts to the crime scene. You might also remember from episode two that there was feces and unidentified green granules found in the stomach of Elizabeth Short. So you're talking about fertilite steer manure. And in the autopsy, the coroner found feces 
in the stomach, in Elizabeth's short stomach. And there's only one way that's going to get there, and that's through oral ingestion or force-fed. So I'm absolutely sure that George fed her this steer manure at the house, forced her to eat it. To be vulgar about it, you know, he forced her to eat shit. In the coroner's report, it also said that there were unidentified green granules, particles found mixed in with the feces. Fertilite would contain that material, so it matches up perfectly with it. So you've got the original receipts for both cement bags and fertilite at the house, and you've got them at the crime scene. And the date. Of course, the date locks it in. So this together, of course, is a huge physical connection. I mean, this is physical evidence photographed in the original crime scenes on January 15th. Our Uncle Steve has clearly established himself as the Black Dahlia Authority. And through his blog, he's able to connect with his readers and anybody who might have something to contribute to his ongoing investigation. And when Steve was interviewed for this podcast, he was protecting a piece of brand new evidence, which he finally agreed to share. As we're doing this interview, I'm about to come out with some startling new information to be presented to the public. I get an email from a woman, and she identifies herself, and she says, I was going through some of my mother's personal effects, settling her estate, and I came across this box. And within this box, I found a letter And the letter was written in my grandfather's handwriting. And it was addressed as follows. In case of death, Margaret Ellens or Glenna Jeans, WSM. And she says, WSM is my grandfather's name, Washington Martin. And she says, this is a letter that he wrote back in October 25th, 1949, handwritten. She says, I've read it, and it refers to a linkage to the Black Dahlia murder. So she sends me the letter, and I'm just totally blown away by it. Because it's a, in effect, this is like a cousin to a dying declaration. In other words, her grandfather has written this. It's not to be opened by or read or made public. It's only in case of the death of either of his daughters. And he goes on with three pages of handwritten letter that lay out the fact that he was a informant for LAPD working undercover. He was living in Los Angeles. He then goes on to say that he's friends with an individual. He doesn't actually name him, but he gives the initials G.H., as in George Hodel, G.H. And he refers to the fact that he's personal friends with G.H. He goes on to lay out the fact that G.H., whom he's known, is the killer of the Black Dahlia. He says that he's writing this letter not to make it public or anything, but simply because he's afraid that G.H. will harm or kill one of his daughters, either daughter. And that what he's written is for the police department, basically, and not to be revealed other than if no harm comes to them. He's very clear in the letter that the police know who G.H. is. And he goes on to say that G.H. is involved with them in corruption, payoffs. He names an attorney in it that's involved in it. He says that the police knew that G.H. was involved in these crimes, but they're protecting him. It was, I mean, a huge support and vindication of me. 
you know, Steve Hodell can talk for 50 hours about why it all fits together and comes together, but it's still Steve Hodell, the son of George Hodell, saying these things. So, I mean, it, it's like the DA files, you know, where completely unbeknownst and unaware of anything, they corroborate that George Odell was the prime suspect, no doubt about it. Well, this is the same. The very fact that this letter existed, unknown, sitting in a box for 70 years, never intended to come out except should harm come to his daughters. It's a vital piece of evidence coming right out of the mouth of one of the insiders. And this is a guy that's working for LAPD, and he's naming G.H. as the killer. Next to a signed confession from George Hodell, this is it's right up there with it. This letter is the most recent piece of Steve's investigation, but it won't be the last. He won't stop until the case is officially solved. There is one thing, though. One piece of scientific proof that could finally put the most famous unsolved murder in American history to rest. But according to Steve, the LAPD will not cooperate. Ten years ago, I was able to obtain a full DNA profile on my father. And at considerable expense to myself, I had the top DNA laboratory in the nation, Bodie Labs in the East Coast in Virginia, process a number of items. And it runs about $2,500 each piece. I had a pair of his shoes. I had four or five different envelopes, mailings, with the stamps and the flaps and they got his full DNA profile off the flap of the envelope. So now we have his full DNA profile. So now what we need is suspect DNA. So LAPD's position was it's all disappeared, we have nothing to compare it to, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, you know, go away. And then they had a exhibition a couple of years ago at the police museum. And they had on display some new items that they had discovered in the files. And they had a whole show about the Black Dahlia. And I noticed that there were a couple of letters. These were the taunting letters that the killer sent to the LAPD in the newspapers. The same ones that Steve had sent out copies of for handwriting analysis. I took pictures of them and I went home and blew them up. And I look on the envelope, and it's got a date on it, a postmark of October 10th, 1950. Well, that's my father's birthday. So that got my attention. Anyway, I wrote a letter to LAPD and said, give me an hour of time and I'll sit down with whoever's got the case and lay this out. This is good potential DNA testing. And basically, after a month, the chief of police responded to me in a letter saying, thank you. Unfortunately, we don't have time to look at cold cases, but good luck with your investigation. Well, the bottom line is that, as I've written to them, there's a reasonable chance that the DNA will come back positive. And they're just unwilling to take those steps, and they have no interest. They can't defeat the evidence, and it's easier for them just to say, go away or ignore it. And that's what they've been doing. If it is his DNA, end of story. This could all be over with one DNA test. Our uncle is staking his reputation on it. 
but he knows it's out of his control. For now, he's going to keep doing what he's always done, obsessively build the case against his father as the murderer of the Black Dahlia. Here's Steve's brother and our great uncle, Kelly Hodel. I'm very proud of Steve. Very proud of my brother. A little worried that he's become obsessed with this whole thing. I've seen him withdraw from a lot of things because of working on the book or having meetings about the book. I don't think there can be any closure to this for Steve. He was once described by one of the DAs that he's like a pit bull. Once he gets his teeth into something, he doesn't let go. I think he has uncovered one of the greatest true crime stories of several decades at least. It's been hard on my family. My sons worry about me, I know. They think, Dad, you're totally obsessed with this. Can you just you know, get off the train? Just end it. It's time to do something else, you know, but I can't. At some point, you know, I do have to stop. And it may be sooner than later, I don't know, because... At, at some point, <laughs> the wick burns down. I can tell that I don't have the fire in the belly as much as it was even five years ago. And at some point, I'll probably just say, okay, I'm done. I'm 77 now, and uh, when I joined LAPD, my goal was to retire at 41, you know, with 20 years on and retire, uh, maybe get sergeant's pay, which would give me three, 400 a month, uh, and I'd be shitting in high cotton and live happily ever after, right? So I've had to revise that a bit. If I could do it by like 81 instead of 41, you know, may maybe so. If I die tomorrow or if, uh, you know, for some other reason, I, w I wasn't able to proceed on the investigation. I'm more than happy with where it's at. I did it for Elizabeth Short. I did it for her family. I did it for all the victims. Uncle Steve's Black Dahlia investigation has affected the entire Hodel family. Once we began to see the evidence he uncovered, there was no turning back. But none of us have had the unique experience he's had. Figuring out that his father may have been one of the most prolific and brutal serial killers of all time. See, through his exhaustive 20-year investigation, Steve Hodell didn't only come to the conclusion that his father, our great-grandfather, was the Black Dahlia murderer. He has also compiled evidence that he believes proves George Hodel has murdered almost 50 women. I've been through every possible emotion with him. Extreme anger and hatred of what he did to these poor women and their families. You know, I've been through all of that and, and gone back and forth with it to now I'm at just at a point of terrible sadness. I've just reached the point where this guy was majorly fucked up, worse than any I've ever seen or known. And he was my dad. And there's nothing I can do about that. I love the part that gave me life and birth and breath and I hate the monster in him. I'll die emotionally divided like that. I love the father and hate the monster. Crank up that radio. 
story. On the next episode of Root of Evil. I must have been 18, 19 years old. And uh, it was kind of like, okay, you're going to meet your grandfather for dinner. That was the only time to talk to him about it. You know, hey, look, look what you've done to my mother. Screw you, you know. You ruined my life. Fuck you, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Closure is a hard thing to come by in the Hodel family. I've asked mom, I'm like, mom, why were you obsessed with finding your birth mother? Why were you not ever obsessed with finding your birth father? And, you know, she's like, I don't know. I just, you know, I just, it was more important about the mother. And I mean, she always kind of like politely skirted it aside. I think she kind of always thought in the back of her head, she didn't want to find out. Thanks for listening to episode six of Root of Evil, the true story of the Hodel family and the Black Dahlia. Root of Evil is an eight-episode series produced by C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13 in partnership with TNT. Tonight.